emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Vera SAGE Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are honored. We are we have Ronald Bailey uh, on the line. Ed, I've been waiting for this for a while. This is great. Yes, no, we're thrilled to have Reason Science Center with us. We had Marion Tupi on, I think it was four weeks ago, and now the book is officially released. So uh, Ronald gets to to share the book with us. So take it away, Ron and Ronald. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me get him in here. Ronald Bailey is the science correspondent for Reason, where he writes a weekly science and technology column from 87 to 90. He was a staff writer for Forbes magazine, covering economic, scientific, and business topics. His articles have appeared all over the place. Uh, and I, I'm going to ask him about this, too. In 1993, he was the Warren T. Brooks Fellow in Environmental Journalism at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's also author, as Ed said, of the brand new book with Marion Tupi, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know. Ron, welcome to The Soul of Enterprise. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. This is great. I've been reading you for a long time. I first read you, I believe, uh, or one of your first books in 93, Echo Scam. Echo Scam, indeed. So we'll, we'll talk about that. I, 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 I've, been, I've been on that beat for a while now. You, you have. I've been very impressive and, and have changed your mind, evolved your thinking. So we'll, we'll talk about that for sure. But I, I have to ask you, did you know Warren Brooks? I never actually got to meet Warren. That is a terrible thing. He died very shortly before, I, uh, you know, when when CEI created the the uh, fellowship in his honor, it was obviously in his honor. And I was I was going to have an opportunity to meet him, and then he fell ill and uh, died very quickly of a of an infectious disease. Wow. He um he's had a he's had a, a powerful impact on me. His book Economy in Mind. Absolutely. Of course, it's one of the reasons we use the Reagan quote, which is the Moscow speech he delivered, written by, I think, uh, Joshua Gilder, George Gilder's nephew, and he quotes in there the economy in mind. So that's why that line's in there. But I just thought that was great when I saw that you were the Warranty Brooks fellow. So, <laughs> so Ron, how have you been holding up with personally with all this COVID and all this other craziness going on? We're in the middle of an election and I realize that everybody out there is a little stressed and so forth, but as a journalist, I've been self-isolating for 25 years. So I'm asking people kind of like, what, what's the big deal? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I understand that, yeah, actually my family and friends are, are pretty well off. I know some friends who've actually had the disease and one of my colleagues has, but they're doing fine now. Uh, and you know, basically, we're we're just hanging hanging in there the way I hope most Americans are, and looking forward to the end of this sometime in the coming year or so. Right, right. And I want to ask you about that. But first, how would you grade the government's response to this pandemic, both at the state and federal levels? Well, at the federal level, it has been catastrophically bad. Let's just put it that way. There's been no leadership at all. 
uh, with regard to how, how, sh how this should have been handled. And if you want to talk about it, there, there was a way that we could have avoided all the, many of these problems, but we failed to do it because Washington and the bureaucracies, both the FDA and the, the Food and Drug Administration, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention completely dropped the ball at the beginning of this thing and let it get out of control. Uh, various states, it's been haphazard. I, um, my, you know, my, I live in Virginia. My state has done sort of a middling path on that. But what happens, of course, is, is that New York did the most catastrophic. Uh, they, they did the worst with regard to handling it. Largely because, again, it was, it, I, you know, if I'm being kind, they were at the beginning of it. People didn't really know what was being dealt with, didn't know what segments of the population were more at risk than others and so forth. But the really stupid mistake that we all know was made up there was that they would take uh, people, older folk, from the hospital and put them in nursing homes where they could infect other older folk <laughs> who are much greater risk. And again, what happened there is my understanding is that the government of New York was basically just following Medicare rules sort of blindly, not thinking about the consequences of, of following those rules. So, but in, in general, the United States has not done a great job. The places that have done a great job are like Germany and South Korea. They both immediately engaged the private sector to get tests out and available to the, pub, to the public. In, in basically less than a week after they identified the, the pandemic as a problem. We didn't get a, a, a test available until basically late March that was anywhere near effective. And the pandemic had already taken off at that point. It's just that, terrible. Was that just the FDA just bungling the whole thing or just trying to keep control? Uh, it was probably both. The CDC actually forbade private companies and, and uh, academic laboratories from using or developing their own COVID tests because we, the CDC, will be developing the gold standard test. And then when they rolled out their test, it turned out to be totally flawed. It couldn't detect the virus, actually. You couldn't tell. And so they waited until the, the last day of February to all of a sudden, you know, other people now can go around de devising these tests. The problem then is that the FDA comes in at that point and has to approve them. And of course, they have their process for a month to take. And I mean, they were being speedy by their, by their lights, but it took another month for them to go ahead and approve a bunch of different tests. And so even more time was lost there. It, it, again, it's, it, that was just the first misstep. There were many others that have gotten us to the situation we are, where we are now. But please, let us talk about the book because there are many nicer friends <laughs> in the world out there. Well, I'm going to make a confession to you, Ron. I didn't get the book yet. So Ed's oh, got dear. it and oh, had dear. a chance to peruse it. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with, with COVID and climate change. On okay. You. Uh, the, the two C's, we'll call them. The two C's. Uh, <laughs> but just, you, you wrote a very, I've been reading a lot of your, your uh, posts and articles, and you wrote one on, a few days ago. Um, about a vaccine and how uh, Americans are worried that the approval process is being driven more by politics than science. Uh, and that's on a bipartisan basis, both, both sides, but yet 62% said they would, they would take the vaccine prior to the election. Would you take it? I would. You would. I, I would. I mean, that's my first uh, cut at it. Obviously I'll evaluate and to see just how political the approval process turned out to be. But I've been following the developments of the vaccines, the, particularly the three leading ones out there. 
and they all seem fairly promising at this point, uh, honestly speaking. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, what's really exciting is one of the vaccines is being developed by a company called Moderna, and it seems mm -hmm. to be the leading one at the moment. But what's really exciting in a technological sense is that the platform they're using is using what they call messenger RNA. And without going into the boring biological details of it, if that vaccine works, if that platform works, we will be able to make vaccines in months for almost any pathogen coming down the path from here on out. I mean, it's just an amazing new way to make vaccines. And it can be done very, very quickly uh, for any future uh, situation. Again, if it works, and it looks to be working at this point, but we don't know for sure. But if it does, it's a, it's a great advance. One of the things that COVID has done is it's it you know if you think about it has it, it it has advanced a lot of things that should already have been happening in the 21st century telemedicine teleworking those kinds of things along with huge swaths of getting rid of whole whole bunches of of uh, regulations that was stymieing and slowing down the development of, of uh, medical treatments and i think that's you know coming out of this you know we're going to look back and go it's been a terrible year i mean 2020 please stop showing us what you got. Uh, but there, there are going to be a lot of innovations and advancements that would have been, would have taken another decade to make their, their way out of the laboratories and the factories. And I'm just really, you know, looking forward to that. I think that, that we can look to a much nicer, better 2021. Yeah. You know, your co-author, Marion Tupi, we had him on and he made that point about how we're just accelerating vaccines, which is just fantastic. And, okay. You actually anticipated my next question. I was going to ask you about all these regulations that have been removed or relaxed during this this right. crisis. Do you think it'll stay that way, or will those come back? Well, uh, the deep secret in my life is is that uh, for a brief time in the early uh, mid seventies, I was actually a government bureaucrat, <laughs> and I, I worked for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission as quote unquote an economist um, and. What my intellectual disdain for bureaucracy uh, turned into white hot hatred after three years of that. And I never want to underestimate the power of bureaucracies to get in the way of progress. So I, I do have some concerns about it. It's, it's going to take it, a lot of, a lot has been unraveled and it will take a while for them to re-ravel it. So I, I am at least in the short term, fairly optimistic with regard to uh, regulatory relief as it were right right i hope you're right on that uh, and you know i, I re-listened to a, a broadcast you did with jonah because we love the remnant podcast big fans of jonah as well and you were on there on may 7th and you guys were talking about the lockdowns do you, do you think the cost of the lockdowns exceeded the benefits from an economic perspective that is an extremely good question, and the answer is still hazy, as they say. Um, what the, when the lockdowns occurred? We have to. This is going to be the political issue of the next I don't know decade because both sides are going to be the, the pro-lockdown people are going to say we saved millions of people, and the anti-lockdown are going to say we destroyed the economy, and then but most both may be right. The problem is it's going to take a long time to sort that out. But we have to remember when the lockdowns came which in March and April, the examples we had were Wuhan, China, where things were going completely out of control, and, and northern Italy, which looked like a disaster zone. I mean, the hospitals were overwhelmed. And so 
Uh, and then you had some really sketchy modeling results from, you know, epidemiological models that suggested that it could be a terrible pandemic, similar actually to what the Spanish flu was in 1918. And remember in 1918, by the way, uh, 2.5% uh, yeah, of everybody who was infected died right. in the United States. I mean, it was, it was a huge problem. And so people who were, you know, I, I'm not a policymaker, I'm a journalist, so I, I'm sitting here uh, trying to imagine what it would have been like looking at those data sets and going lockdown or not lockdown. Um, probably the hard lockdown wasn't necessary, but again, I, I, you, know, you look at what Sweden did, and a lot of people cite them as, as great examples. They're not really a good example. They did almost everything we did. Uh, they forbade groups of more than 50 people to get together. They shut down all their high schools and universities. Uh, the restaurants had social distancing requirements. Uh, the only thing they just said was, is that we'd really like you to do that as opposed to we're going to insist that you do that by law. And it basically they ended up with uh, uh, far more disease and death than their Nordic neighbors who did do hard lockdowns did. Again, and, they, and interestingly, so far anyway, uh, their economic results are, are not, in fact, are worse than the European unions as a whole. So right. what did they get? I don't know the answer to that. But we may, they may be able to avoid a second wave of, of infection this fall because of what they did. But we'll see. In other Excellent. words, in other words, I don't really have a, a, an easy answer to this question. Sorry. Right. I, I don't think there is one. I think you're right. <laughs> well, Ron, unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out uh, and become a Patreon subscriber, patreon.com slash TSOE, which is now sponsored by 90 Minds because be kind to your mind and hire one at 90minds.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're 
always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and the book is 10 global trends every smart person should know by ronald bailey and marion tupi uh, marion was a guest of ours about a month ago uh, first, I want to congratulate you on the book, Ronald, but also to say it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful book. <laughs> it is. I must say that the uh, people who put that book together is just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's an, I, you know, it would look great on everyone's coffee table, as I point out. It would make a great bar mitzvah gift, wedding gift, birthday. You cannot have too many copies. Well, I, I'm thinking, honestly, uh, several bo- copies for people at Christmas, because I, I, it's, it's something that needs to be distributed among my family members. Be, and not because they're anti this, but because I think they are often misinformed. And we'll talk a little bit about that. It, let's, o- let's open with a question that you ask in the introduction of the book. Why do so many smart people wrongly believe that all things considered, the world is getting worse? Well, uh, as you say, we do, we do look at that and we give polling data, and I've always been astonished by this, but uh, they're, they're basically, there are three things that I think that, that happen that are basically psychological glitches. And first of all, smart people, we are addressing it to smart people, is that smart people pay attention to the news. They pay attention to the problems of the world. And therefore, they get a distorted view of what's really going on in the world, we would argue. And I hope the data that we supply will show that. But essentially, smart people are trying to solve the problems of the world. And the way that the news media works is the problems of the world are forefronted. That's what you always see on the front page. Or as the old hoary line goes, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. But then, you know, the psychological, you know, there's another thing in our evolution. And we have a little anecdote about that is, is that... Uh, if the, you know our ancestors wandering around the plains of Africa were wandering, you know, when they heard the rustle in the bushes, and they dismissed it as, oh, that's just the wind, and it turned out to be a lion, they got selected out. The person who thought every rustle was a lion, they are our ancestors. So we are the descendants of the people who are very cautious. So we worry about things. It's easier to see problems than it is to see uh, progress, as it were. And then the other thing, and this is a real psychological glitch that I think that people don't quite get, is, is progress hides itself. Is, as progress continues, then we go, all right, that problem's solved, and we don't think about it anymore. We go to the next problem. So we, don't, so we lose sight of all of the massive numbers of problems that, that humanity has solved over the, the last centuries and focus only on the new ones that are are in front of us. So what we're trying to do is to get with this book, the longest term reasonable trends we can for all of the the data we cite, so that people will get a sense of the trajectory of how much things have changed over time. And I I, I really enjoyed reading, I haven't read every word of it, 
peruse through the whole thing and I'm about halfway through actually the, the, the full book. But um, w- one thing I wanted to, 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 you know, so you don't think that, you know, thousands of years from now, people are going to dig up our stuff and wonder why so much so any of them have an apple, half bitten apple, uh, you know, on them, right? <laughs> be able, they'll be able to figure it out from our records, not just that. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that, that that's true. Yes. So let's talk about the trends. The first trend is the great enrichment. And we've had Deirdre McClowski on talking about that. And trend two is the end of poverty. Which is the flip side of that, which we wanted to point to because it's not that we have the great enrichment. The world is a lot wealthier, but it didn't all go to the top 1%. This is why we wanted to look at poverty. Yeah, And poverty is is down from 90% uh, two centuries ago to below 10% now. And, and that, I wanted you to take it, it, it just a, even a step further. And because you do mention this at the very end of the, the section on it, you say the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change uh, expects the economy will grow by $600 trillion by 2100. What will that mean for our children and your grandchildren and even the grandchildren of those in sub-Saharan Africa? Well, that, try to imagine what that, well, the, <laughs> one way to think about this is, is if you think about the world's economy back in 1900, it was about uh, four to five trillion dollars in real dollars, and now it's 120 trillion. Now, if you go back to 1900, what could Rockefeller, the richest man in the world, have bought at the time? Antibiotics? No. An airplane ride? No. Uh, computer? No. Electricity? Stably? Well, some, but not, you know, most people didn't have it. And on and on. I mean, there's the things that he could not do uh, compared to what a middle class American could do is just enormous. And and the, and that and we stand in exact same relation to the future generations. It's almost unimaginable how wealthy they will be, and what you know. And these are real dollars we're talking about. But also think about the technologies that are going to be coming along with that. It's not uh, six hundred trillion dollars buying the same stuff we have now. It's going to be so much better stuff we can't even imagine. So they the basically. Uh, 80 years from now will be what we would think of as an entirely science fiction world. Even as our grandparents think the world we live in, it must have been, is a science fiction world. It'll, yeah, I, it'll, I, it'll I, be great. It will, well, I, I've, I've said that people are worried about future shock. I have future glee. Like, right. right. <laughs> Actually, I suffer from future ennui because I already know the good stuff is coming. Hurry up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to be around for some of this stuff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the, trend number three is uh, asks a question, so I'll just ask it. Are we running out of resources? No, 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 no. Uh, and, and this, you know, when I was when I was a kid, uh, one, my professors actually taught me the limits to growth, published in 1972, which basically said that the world was going to run out of oil, natural gas, gold, copper, zinc, a bunch of stuff by the year 2000, and my world was going to be terrible. Uh, now, that, is a, that didn't happen, we may have noticed. So what, what did happen, in, and what uh, this particular chapter is, is really built on the work that my co-author, Marion Tooby, has been working on, is looking at what he calls the time price of, of resources. So what you have there, we're showing that in real terms, the actual uh, a, a basket of 50 commodities, very, you know, metals, energy, food, that kind of thing, has gone down in real terms by about 36%. And that's in real dollars since 1980. But if you do the time price, that is how many hours you have to spend to earn those resources, that basket of resources, it's gone down almost 70%. Uh, 
And as we know, as a good economist know, if things are getting cheaper, that means they're becoming more abundant, not becoming more scarce. Right. And then I, I hear this, but what about the rare earths that yeah. you know are all in China? What about the rare earths? <laughs> well, that, well, and of course, and I've actually written about that. It's not particularly in here, but the fact of the matter is that rare earths aren't actually all that rare. The truth is, is that they're all over the place. That China can, the reason that China has, has taken control of it is because they, how shall we say this? Their uh, environmental regulations are somewhat less stringent than other places. Uh, but the moment they, they, you know, I don't know, I don't know if people remember this. Ten years ago, they tried to jack up the prices. The country did. China, the Chinese government, they tried to do that, and immediately mines were opened in Australia, uh, California, and Malaysia. It, it, no, this is just another silly scare. But it's perpetrated by people, well-meaning people like in our Department of Defense for no good reason. So trend four is a peak population. Yes. Um, a, the sh the short, short answer is we haven't reached it, but we're getting close. Yep. But my question to you is what happens when the population starts to decline since we've not experienced that except for tragically? I mean, this would be a situation where it's not tragic. No, it's not tragic. Basically, what this means is that people are getting control of their own reproduction. That is, they're having greater freedom to decide how many children they want to have. One of the things that people may not remember, in 1960, the average woman on planet Earth was having six children over the course of her life. Many of them didn't live, unfortunately. We also have data on that. But now it's down to 2.4 children, and most of them live. And this is one of the trends, is that basically when people can... Here, here's a really fascinating study was done by folks at the University of, of, uh, of Connecticut. Um, the average woman, if she lives in a society where her lifespan, her life expectancy is in the 40s, she has seven kids because she recognizes a lot of people aren't going to make it. When it's to 50, it goes down to five. When it gets to 60, it goes down to three. When it goes to seven, 70, it goes down to fewer than two. So what happens is, is that women, if they re recognize that their lifespans are likely to be long and fruitful, that means they're living in, in, organi in organized societies where the rule of law exists and so forth, basically they choose to have fewer kids and invest more in them. And this is what this trend indicates ultimately. Uh, I, I, and again, going back to your opening with regard to a lower population, I don't think that that's going to mean less human ingenuity in the future. I don't think it's going to have nearly the deleterious mm -hmm. consequences that a lot of people are worried about because human ingenuity uh, will be greatly enhanced by all kinds of uh, cognitive uh, technologies that will be coming down in the 20th century. And just better connectedness, too. We absolutely. Had a large absolutely. population, but we're just better connected. Uh, well, let's try to get trend number five in here before our break, and that is the, the end of famine. Um, which is just amazing. But the the question that I they have or that I hear after I mention this to people that famine's gone away is, oh, but what about GMOs? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, isn't you know, that is what's prevented famine? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Uh, what about GMOs? You're super go more GMOs. If you want, if you, if you want to save nature, what you want to do is produce more food on less land, which is in fact we show the trends later in the book. That that's exactly what's happening and genetically modified crops are a huge part of the reason that we are using less land and why more land is being freed up for nature which we can get to later in the next segment perhaps 
The, well, that is trend number six, but we are right up against our break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron and me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. And we will put in the show notes for our conversation with Ronald Bailey, including a link to buying the book on Amazon for all of your friends and family. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise ed class here again with my friend ron uh, baker and we have today the author of the newly released book 10 global trends every smart person should know and i love the subtitle too and many others you will find interesting unfortunately we're probably not going to get to the many others that you'll find interesting today but let's talk a little bit more about the the trends number six you alluded to in the last segment toward the end which was the end of famine but trend six is more land for nature right and what, what we're using to illustrate that is uh, fabulous research done, uh, uh, researchers at the, at the University of Maryland, where what they do is they've been looking at the globe using satellites trying to track tree cover trends since 1982. And what they've discovered, actually, over that period since 1982, is the amount of tree cover in the, in the, in the world, globally, while it's going down a little bit, still going down in, in South America, for the most part of the rest of the world, tree cover has been expanding or is, or is at least stable. And so since 1982, uh, an area the size of Alaska plus Montana has become covered with trees that previously had not had trees. That includes areas that were savannas that are now expanding, trees have been expanding into them, but also a lot of abandoned farmland. Again, 
what happens is, is that if you're growing more food on less land, you can leave more land for nature. Now, the upshot of this, and what I'm trying to get to is that a lot of people are worried about a sixth mass extinction, that essentially humanity's activities are driving a lot of species to extinction. And I, want, I think that this data cuts against that because as land is freed up, it, it, it enables more space for other species on the planet to flourish over time. So I think that this is part of why the, the sixth mass extinction is likely not to occur as predicted. Yeah, and we really wouldn't miss the mosquito. It really, I mean, I just no, no. In fact, <laughs> let, 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 let's use gene drives to get rid of them, but that's another controversial claim. But anyway. Sure, sure. Trend seven is Planet City. We all remember the Planet City in, of uh, Star Wars fame. Um, and but I think this is an interesting trend. One thing I did want to ask you about this, though, is do you still feel the same in light of COVID nineteen that we're going to see this trend continue towards cities? Yes, because I think we'll have a vaccine. And I think that essentially, I'm, I'm going to make a bold statement. I, I probably, I may, I hope I'm not wrong, wrong about this, but I think this will be the last pandemic. Uh, because essentially, the, we've unleashed so much medical technology and biotechnology uh, that we'll, and, and ways of detecting these things in advance. So I think this may be it. In which case, absolutely, cities will come back. People enjoy cities. They enjoy being uh, in areas where they get both entertainment, education, and and income, uh, cities are are have been attracting people for uh, the last two centuries, and are the source of actually most innovation in the world. So I, I think that yes, that that's not going to be a problem. Uh, on the data here, uh, we point out that uh, it to be I think it was in the first decade of the 20th century that it was the first time that more than 50% of humans lived in cities. Uh, according to the, the projections, and I think they may be low, uh, it, by the end of the century, 85% of humanity will be living in cities. And again, another advantage of that is that it leaves more land for nature. Essentially, 3 billion people or 3.5 billion people are living on the landscape now. If these trends continue, both the population trends and the city trends continue, that'll be cut more than in half. In other words, most people most people will be living in cities and they won't be, they certainly won't be subsistence farmers chopping down forests in Africa and South America anymore. And therefore more land for nature. Outstanding. And uh, trend number eight is democracy on the march. And the chart really shows the incredible uh, increase in democracy across the world, not since like the 40s when you would think it would is, but actually since the, the, the 70s is really when the switch began to occur. Right. And it, it, but yet again, there's still fear. Yeah. Just today, I had a friend post on Facebook, if you vote for X, you are voting for the end of America as we know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got their ex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, no, I mean, we all have our concerns about these. I mean, the, the, the democratic project is not something that just sustains itself. You have to keep right. engagement. You still have to defend it. The Constitution needs defending. No, no question about it. But what we're trying to do is to show, again, the, the trends have been positive. And, and partially, I would argue, they're positive because uh, democracies slowly but surely outcompete autocracies. They just fail over time. They're, the internet has used, has given you know, people living under authoritarian regimes examples of how other ways of living and they slowly but surely take them up. And again, 
there will, you know, as Steven Pinker says, if everything was getting better all the time, that would be a miracle. It's not wouldn't actually describe progress. Progress has some setbacks over time, and we can all all point to them. But again, if you look at the long enough trend, uh, what we find is that the number of autocracies and the percentage of people living under autocracies has been going down quite substantially over the last fifty years. Yeah, number number. Nine is the long piece, and I, I I felt very personally connected to this one because both my grandfather and father, I can remember conversations with them who said, you know, Ed, it's likely that you or your brother end up going to war at some point. Yeah. I mean, and this is, and I grew up in the in the seventies and early eighties, and it was still the belief among that generation that this would happen. But this trend just states that you know the number of wars and interstate wars have have just been a, a trend down, and that's been a wonderful thing. So talk about the, the long piece. Well, and there are all kinds of possible reasons for it, but what we're showing with that data is interstate wars, that is, war countries between countries, uh, between different countries, have been going down uh, fairly substantially since World War II. Now, there are all kinds of possible reasons for that. Uh, there, you know, there's the, the democratic piece. The more democratic countries don't fight one another, typically. So that's, a, therefore, more democracies, uh, fewer wars. Another aspect may be coming out of population is that if, if people have fewer children, they may not want to send them off to war because they, they won't have any left over if some of them get killed and so forth. So the, the population trend may be contributing to that. And what's interesting, if you look at the Rand Corporation data who are trying to track these things, they think that that trend, as far as they can track it using their particular data points, they think the trend will continue for at least another 20 years if not more. Let me, let me just give you an opportunity to, on, on both Democracy on the March and the, the Long Peace, something that's been in, in the news uh, lately, and just one word in response, and if you've got something on this, great, but China, and maybe specifically comment on Hong Kong, do we, is, is there a, a concern there? Actually, I do have a concern there, and basically, if, if there's anything that might interrupt these trends, and I, this is, these are in the dark night of the soul moments, I worry about the uh, development of a social uh, credit state. Basically, China now has a vast surveillance state where they do facial recognition on cameras everywhere. And they, every citizen has to basically carry a card that keeps track of what they're doing. And, and they get merits and demerits. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're doing what the party wants you to do, you get you know, good points. And if you're not, you get subtracted points. And subtracted points have terrible consequences. Your kid can't go to a good school. You can't ride on an airplane. You can't get certain kinds of jobs. And they, one of the more devilish aspects of this is if you hang around with people who have low credit scores, that lowers your credit score. So obviously, I'm, I am worried that this kind of automated totalitarianism is possible. And we, we really do need to keep our eye on the ball on that and avoid that. Uh, just just. Quickly, as follow-up, is are you concerned about that at the government level or more at the private sector level with, say, you know, Facebook, Twitter, that kind of thing? It's really it's convoluted. I, I'm I'm not worried about uh, the private level so much, though. The problem is, is I'm, I'm afraid that that might lead to turnkey totalitarianism. Is I I met, all this data is there. Twitter, uh, Google, they all have it, and the facial recognition cameras are going everywhere now. And I could talk to you about my concerns about that, but. My real concern is, is that we have another 9-11 moment and that all of a sudden the government goes to, you know, and the populace agrees, 
goes to the private companies and says, we now want access to all your data all the time. We have to protect ourselves. And then that's a turnkey. You can turn on to a, a kind of authoritarianism similar to China's using private enterprise at that point. And I do worry about that. Yeah, because the private sector is likely that the government could take that over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Well, the, the last trend in the top 10, as I said, there I think there are 78 total trends in the book, and maybe we'll get to one or two of the others. But t- number 10 is a safer world. And by that, you mean the significant reduction in deaths from natural disasters from 1900 right. until the present. So talk a little bit about that. Right. What we're looking at in this safer world section is the number of deaths from all kinds of natural catastrophes, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, epidemics, epidemics. Think about that, epidemics. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that since uh, their peak in the 20th century anyway, in the 1920s and the 30s, basically, uh, people have, your chances of dying are 99% less than your grandparents were. In other words, you have 1% chance of dying of these disease, of, of these uh, catastrophes uh, that, are in, that our, our great-grandparents and grandparents had to do from it. So basically, our world is 99% safer. And, that, and, you know, and that's because of wealth and technology and knowledge, yep. and it's only going to get better. Oh, great stuff. Well, that rounds out the top 10. Now I'm excited. I have about three minutes to get some of the, 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 to, to some of the others. And uh, the one that jumped out at me is jumping ahead to trend 14, which is global inequality is falling. And then the response is always, but what about local inequality? And we run, and I like to ask this question, is it fair that Jeff Bezos is so rich? And what's my fair of his, my fair share of his money anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... What we're trying to show again is, yeah, inequality f- fluctuates. And, but basically what this is a global trend is, is that the world was highly unequal, let's say around 1950 or something. Very, a lot of very, very, very poor people in the world compared to a, a relatively small group of fairly well-off people in, the, in Western, United, Western Europe and the United States. And what we've discovered as development has gone is that that's, that gap is closing between countries over time. Um, the, the rich are, the, the global rich are not just getting richer faster than the poor of the, of the poor world. The poor world is catching up to us. And I think that's a great trend. All right. Well, let me see if I can sneak one of the later trends in on you, because this is one I think that most people would not even get close if you asked them what the percentage was. And that is access to electricity, trend number 60 86% of the world has access to electricity. I don't think there's anybody that I know would get that right at all. No, no. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's still tragic that 14% don't. I mean, it, it, right, right, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yep, but, yeah, yes, I, agreed. Uh, and, and again, uh, well, I, I, what can we say is, is that this is something, if, if, imagine trying to live without electricity. Uh, and I, uh, actually, a guy who was kind of a friend of mine at one point, uh, Norman Borlaug, the guy who, who did the Green Revolution, we, he were talk, he, we were talking about these things. And he said, you know what that would be like, Ron, without living without electricity? He said, it would be camping, but camping forever. <laughs> and who wants to camp forever? No, I, I don't want to camp for one night. 100,000 years of human civilization means I sleep inside. That's what <laughs> yeah, it means. <laughs> exactly. 
No well, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Unless you want to. Great. But I don't want to. Well, the book, again, is 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know by Ronald Bailey, our guest today, and Marion Tupi. Highly recommend it. Uh, we're up against our last break. want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is the soul of enterprise. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Ronald Bailey, the science correspondent for Reason Magazine. And, and Ron, I know that your first article in Reason on global warming was back in 1992, Yeah, <laughs> which is well, amazing. And you, you thought back then that the threat was overblown, and you even published a book, Ecoscam, in 1993, I believe, which I read. I think that was the first book of yours that I read, uh, and it really had a big impact on me. But you've changed your mind, and now you think it could well be a significant problem. What changed your mind? Well, I'd like to say the data, <laughs> um, because all right. So my trajectory, the way I've been, I've been reporting on this for quite some time. I began reporting on environmental issues actually for Forbes magazine back in the '80s, and I did go to the, as you point out, the uh, the UN conference on climate change, and uh, the first one actually in Rio de Janeiro, where the um, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was. Uh, hammered out and adopted. And I, I kept following the, in, in any case, I wrote, uh, uh, let me slow down here. In, I had followed environmental trends and environmental scares uh, for, for a couple of decades. Uh, there was the limits to growth, population bomb, uh, we're all gonna die of chemicals, silent spring. And the, the framework, if you will, the intellectual framework of climate change struck me as being a whole lot like that. 
And so I was very, I was, I was skeptical because essentially what it, environmentalism had turned into a kind of ideology. And uh, I, at the time, uh, the data with regard to temperature trends was um, uh, not at all clear, honestly. There was a very, yeah, the, 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 the folks at the University of Alabama at Huntsville had just set up their uh, satellite tracking system and they were showing absolutely no trend in temperatures over the over the uh, the period of time that they had at that point. And there were other, you know, it was the data were were messy, so it was quite reasonable. In fact, the uh, the National Academy of Sciences put out a report in '93 saying, "Well, we really don't know for sure what the trends are with with respect to uh, temperature." And so I maintained that skepticism, possibly too long. I kept following the data. Talk. I, I, I went to many subsequent uh, UN climate change meetings and did reporting from those. Uh, I met and talked to lots of climatologists over the course of my reporting, you know, scores and scores of them at least, and have read hundreds of articles. And slowly but surely, uh, about 2005, the data had accumulated enough that I basically wrote an article saying, well, uh, we're all global warmers now. It turned out that I was wrong. A lot of people that I thought were my friends weren't all global warmers yet, and they let me know that. But in any case, the 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 trends had added up to the temperatures were increasing. Uh, uh, other kinds of trends, that were, uh, bad rainstorms or more fierce rainstorms were increasing. Sea level was rising, that kind of thing. And I became persuaded that it was possibly going to be a significant problem for humanity later in the, in the century. And uh, I think that all I've done is, is try to follow the science on that regard. The, the flip side of that though, is that I've been trying to talk to my friends in the free enterprise movement, basically saying to them is, uh, if it is a problem, you should acknowledge that because the problem right now is you have people like Naomi Klein who's arguing that climate change is a perfectly wonderful excuse to get rid of capitalism. Right. And you you need to get ahead of the policy things because if you don't have a horse in the horse race, you can't win it. And to the extent you're sitting here going, no, 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 there's not a problem. And let these other folks say, well, the only solutions to the problem is socialism, then you're going to lose. Right. No, that's a great point. I, I also wanted to ask you, I just finished uh, uh, about a month ago, Bjorn Lomberg's new book, False yes. Alarm. Do you have, what's your take on that? I have, I confess I haven't read it, but I pretty, I think I know what Bjorn is up to. And he's not wrong in a certain way. I mean, I've looked at these data too. And the question is, um, how much is, is climate change likely to harm the economy in the future, let's say, that's one way to put it. And uh, I think that if you, I, I don't know, there are probably 30 or 40 pretty good uh, studies that are based, now keep in mind, they're based on, a, on econometric models Yep. combined with climate models. So your belief in what they're going to put out is you should check, get your salt shaker. We'll put it that like way. Like you said, a vat of salt, not a, a grain of salt, salt, a vat, a vat of, of salt. salt. I love that. But, but if, you look, if you look at those, uh, what they basically suggest is that, uh, let's say people making $100,000 a year in, in 2100, if there were no climate change, or as an average, per, per, not, I mean, uh, Making $100,000 in 2100 is an average per capita income. 
it would be only it would be reduced by five percent. That'd be instead these poor people would be making only ninety five thousand dollars per year, and that's not a tragedy, I don't think. The question is, all right, if if that's actually the trajectory, then perhaps we don't really need to do a whole lot about it. Uh, the, the truth is, it will, we will have to do something. Sea level will continue to rise, so we will have to retreat uh, from the coastlines at least a bit or, or defend them in some ways, and that will cost something. Um, uh, but the, the technologies are there. We can certainly do it as a species, and richer people will be able to do it even more easily than we are able to do it now. Uh, so the question then is, and I hate the precautionary principle, I think the precautionary principle is possibly the worst idea in human history, and that includes communism. Amen. But, but the way I put it in my most recent reporting is, how lucky do you feel? Right. The question is, uh, you know, the, the models say, well, it could be fairly mild, it could be going this way, we could adapt to it slowly over time. But are there transition points that uh, where there would be rapid change that would be very costly out there? And it's not a non-zero uh, possibility. And I want people to be aware of that when they're making their risk, risk assessments, when they're trying to think about what policies we should adopt to address climate change. Right. Um, go ahead. Ron, we've only got a couple minutes, but I, I, I got to get this question to you too, because you probably know this guy, Patrick Moore. I do. The original founders of Greenpeace, and I also just finished his book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout. Why the hostility, the nuclear power from those most <laughs> worried about climate change? Oh, uh, I don't know what the psychological part. No, it's um, the what <laughs> one syndrome. Of, no, yeah, no. The the actually, I've written about this. One of the things that happened is that the environmental movement. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, identified nuclear power as something they wanted to get rid of. And it, it, underneath a whole bunch of it was, a, it was an anti-population uh, problem. It basically, we don't want to give uh, cheap power to people because there'll just be more people, people. and it'll make, it, it'll make the, the world a worse place. And they, they claimed it was a safety issue and blah, 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 but the deep ideology behind it, and you can go back and find more about it. Uh, Michael Schellenberger has written about this, for example. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of horrific if you think about it. And what they did was so complicate the regulations that a trend where power was getting a lot cheaper to build power plants, as you learned to do it, was getting a lot cheaper in the United States. And in fact, according to the National Academy of Sciences report, in the 70s, we, they expected us to have a thousand nuclear power plants operating in the United States by the year 2000. And if we had that, think of what our carbon footprint would be today, vastly yeah. lower. Yeah, anyway. for sure. I, you know, Michael Moore's new movie, apparently blast solar and wind is really expensive. And, but he's reverting back to the problem. It's too many people. We have too many people. Uh, which, seemed... is, which we point out that's not going to happen, is that people are going to uh, choose to have fewer children over time. But right. the, the nuclear power, you know, I don't get to be the czar, thank goodness. I, don't think anyone, <laughs> I think no one should be the czar, but right. nuclear power would be my chief solution to the problem of climate change. Excellent. Well, Ron, thank you so much. It's been such an honor having you on. Long, long time fan. Keep up the great work. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? 
Next week, Ron, on 9-11, we're going to welcome Margaret Wheatley to our show, author of The Leadership in the New Science and some really wonderful books. Fantastic. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes on our conversation with Ronald Bailey, links to some of his posts, and of course, the book. Um, and also, if you want to contact Ed or me, send an email to ask. TSOE at Verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.